This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. And welcome to another episode of the Bird Hugger Podcast. Just because it's freezing cold and snowing outside doesn't mean we can't talk about gardening and native plants. Winter is the perfect time for planning what we will do once springtime arrives. To that end, today we have with us well-known ecological landscape designer Kathy Connolly. Kathy has been gardening and teaching about native plants for the last 15 years. Headquartered in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, Kathy works as a consultant to help homeowners achieve the native garden of their dreams. Kathy says site and soil preparation are the two keys to success. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. So could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? All right. Well, I am what they call an ecological landscape designer. I focus on designs that use a lot of native plants and try to work very gently with sites in order to prepare them. I live in Connecticut. I work all over Southern New England and I give a lot of talks all over Southern New England as well. So tell us now, how did you get involved in native plant design? Well, it's been a long journey. Certainly, it, you could, in a way, say it started with my grandma. <laughs> but I think a lot of people's journeys start with one of their elders, and, and mine certainly did. But as I moved towards the landscape industry throughout my, let's say, my 30s and my 40s, it became increasingly clear to me that there was a reason why we needed to be interested in native plants. And that had to do with the rest of nature, particularly the insects and the birds. So that's how I got to that point. And eventually I went and got a master's degree in ecological landscape design from the Conway School. And ever since then, I have been in business doing that form of design. It's so funny that you mentioned grandmothers and their influence. One of the first gardening books I ever wrote was called Getting Back to Grandma's Garden. Oh. <laughs> and it was a, you know part memoir, part gardening instruction book on the influence my grandmother had on me. This is my father's mother who had come over from Ireland and she used to walk our backyard. She would hold my hand and walk me through the entire backyard and point out and tell me what everything was. And she'd point out the butterflies and the bees. And she made it such an enchanting process for me. But I guess I had no choice, but once I became an adult to be a gardener. My story is very closely parallel to yours. 
she was German and she took me for walks. She grew as much of the food as she could for her family. And so she had these extensive vegetable gardens and she had these little stories she would tell me about not stepping near the tomato plants because I'd make the fairies unhappy. <laughs> it was like this. So it was, yeah, it was a place of enchantment with a gentle person and there was no fear created and no negative associations. And that was the beginning. So very cool. Yeah. My grandmother used to read tea leaves for everybody in the family. Aha. Uh-huh. Tell their fortune with tea leaves. And she believed in fairies too. Oh, gee. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. I guess my question for you in terms of site maintenance and site preparation would be that a native garden doesn't necessarily have to be wild looking or out of control, right? Is that the idea that comes with site preparation? That could be one of the design criteria that you're going to have something more conventional looking in the sense of having plants that sit back from pathways, in beds, the plants don't touch each other. Those are part of the traditional look to a lot of not only American gardens, but I think European and many gardens worldwide. But the bigger part of it is to create a space where native plants can thrive. Now, whether they will be planted in a formal arrangement or a very naturalized arrangement is somewhat secondary to that pursuit. I hope that answers the question. It does. In fact, what I was going to ask you was one of the great things about having your own property or your own home is you can put your gardens where you want, you can grow whatever you want in your yard. But there are some people that live in communities with homeowners associations that are a little on the strict side. So I imagine having a little more controlled look of your native gardens would help you avoid getting one of those awful blue slips stating that you're in violation of HOA regulations, right? Yes, I think that's true. You may need to conform to a particular look in order to not get that little blue slip. Yeah. (laughs) Now, if we were to get inside the heads of the people running your typical HOA, what is it you think they're looking for that would signal a violation? What really ticks them off the most? You know, I keep a whole file of articles on this. There's there are so many stories coming out on websites. The Reddit website actually has a whole section devoted to this topic with homeowners associations. It's usually people who aren't mowing their lawns according to the rules, but often it's also people who are growing, heaven forbid, tall plants. They're over two and a half feet and They're more than knee height, let's say, and this somehow violates a rule, not just expectations, but rules. And that starts the process of the conflict. (laughs) And just out of curiosity, who do you feel starts the process going in terms of complaints with an HOA? Is it the actual committee, HOA committee itself, or is it the neighbors that go to the committee to complain? I've read stories that go both ways. I really have. I think it could be 50-50. I certainly haven't counted stories, but it could go either way. With front yards, it seems to be really all about conspicuous consumption and real estate values. Is it safer to plant natives in the backyard? (laughs) Well, I suppose it could be. I have to say, in my experience, I'm not quite sure how to comment on that, because in my experience, the people who 
bring me in to give them ideas or to do a design or to supervise planting have usually already gotten past that point. They either know they're going to do it in the front yard and they believe it's okay, or they're going to work in the backyard and they know it's okay. I will say that I have been called in to properties much more often where there's a section that's gone to nothing but what we would call weeds, areas that are full of vines or other really difficult areas that have lots of unwanted plants in them. And it's usually actually not that they're trying to do a lawn reduction. I know that lawn reduction gets a lot of press as a strategy for improving our support for pollinators. But in my experience, and this is just one person's experience, in my experience, it's more that people are asking to reclaim feral areas on their properties. And are they in the backyard? Many times. Not always. Sometimes they're between a neighbor or two neighbors or a town road ending that's gone feral and their own property or the state forest next door that's slowly vining its way into someone's property. Those are some of the situations where I get called in by people who want to replace that area with native plants more often than anything. Okay, so why don't we talk about site preparation now? Could you tell our listeners why it's so important? Yeah, to me, it's become incredibly important. I've come to realize that without appropriate site preparation, you may struggle for years to get your landscape to the condition that you want it to be. And so what I try to suggest to people is that we have three big topics to consider. One is, what was it before? Now, if it's a lawn, that's one thing. If it's a weedy, feral area, that's a separate thing. You have two very separate conditions there. Where are you going with it? What's your intention for it? People call on me a lot for meadow-style plantings. They could be very small meadow gardens, let's call them, or some of them are very big. But what is your intention for the space? And then finally, what will it take to achieve what you want that to look like and be? If your intention is to support wildlife, to better support soil life, and so forth. In what way do you want to do that? Where are you headed? So there's really three big topics that you have to think about in order to do it efficiently. What I have learned, sometimes the hard way, even on my own property, is that if you're not carefully considering what it was before, then you're not anticipating what is likely to come up on its own in some future iteration on that space. If it was full of feral plants, they're going to come back. They've put down maybe years worth of seeds into the soil. And seeds can last for a very, very long time, much longer than most people believe. And as a result, you really need to figure out how to exhaust that seed bank. You either have to allow stuff to grow for a few years and systematically clear it out, or you may need to cover it for a time, for a year to two years with wood chips. There are a variety of ways that we can accomplish it, but this is what's involved, is really understanding what it was, what you want, and what it's gonna take to get to what you want. 
Now, can you walk us through some of this? What is actually involved in site preparation in terms of steps? Well, again, you have to go back to what it was. If you're converting a lawn, it's actually one of the easier things to do. Lawn grass takes a lot of support. You withdraw the support and the grass tends to wither away over a period of time. If you want to kill it very, very quickly, sod cutters are great. So you can sod cut a lawn and remove it in a day. And then what you're left with is just the bare soil and the seed bank that's in that soil. So the idea of coming and planting right away into that site is maybe not such a good one because you're likely to get lots of stuff. Maybe it'll be clover that will come up from seed that's embedded in the soil there. It could be plantains or a whole host of cool season and warm season weeds. Let's call them unwanted plants because there's a difference between a weed and an unwanted plant. But the point is that if you just turn around and plant it the next day, the chances are very good that you're not going to like what you're seeing a few months later or a year later, because a lot of old stuff will come up into your planting. So that would be the case of a lawn removal. If you're working with an area that has lots and lots of unwanted plants, non-native invasive plants, for instance, that's even trickier because once you get the plants out of there, the top growth that's visible, and even if you pull the roots, you're still stuck with perhaps years worth of embedded seed bank. So this problem of exhausting the embedded seed bank turns out to be the sleeper. If you acknowledge it and you work with it, that is a bonus for you in terms of your ultimate success. But if you don't acknowledge it and you skip right past it, what you will find is that the unwanted stuff comes in again and again. So that's not what we want, right? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds to me like site preparation really gives you a head start in terms of offering a more ordered appearance to your native gardens. Well, it can, but again, I'm talking about any design. It could be a highly naturalized design where you have a layered approach, where you have a native ground cover layer, a native shrub layer, a native, you know, you can have very dense plantings of native plants. A lot of people call that a naturalized look. Or you can have a very formal look where the plants are not touching, where you have little islands. Maybe you've dug in trenches around the edges of the beds and have things formally mulched. These are all possibilities. But the point is that if the soil isn't properly prepared, unwanted plants are going to come back into your hard work. So that's really the issue. And what would be the next step after making sure the soil is prepared? Well, at that point, once I feel as though we're really ready and things are in good shape, along the way, I would have gotten a soil test. And I don't get just any soil test. When I get a soil test, I ask the client to pay for a few extras, (laughs) not just the NPK reading, which is nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, but also the soil texture. For instance, is it a sandy loam? Is it a clay loam type of soil? Is it heavy on silt? These are important questions in terms of plant selection. What's the pH? That comes with every soil test, but it's incredibly important for plant selection. What's the level of organic matter in the soil? Is there salt in the soil? 
of any form, forget about table salt, there are many forms of salt that can form in soils and they can be problematic for your new plants. And then what about soil contaminants? I, For the first time in my work, I recently had a test come back with lead and we had to take steps to make sure that if critters were going to come along and eat the little strawberries we were planting, that they wouldn't be getting any lead that was taken up by the plant. So I get a soil test and then we start to make adjustments based on what the soil test says. If it's very, very low on organic matter, below 3%, then it's likely that we're going to do something to increase the organic matter, which is usually to get a sufficient amount of compost, finished compost. And I'm very picky about compost, not just any compost will do. Certainly don't take free materials from town transfer stations. So we go through this process of, of analyzing what is the growing medium like? How much does it need to be amended? If you're lucky, not much at all, but you may not be lucky. <laughs> I run into a lot of situations where there's very low organic matter and we do have to make some amendments to get the organic matter content up to somewhere between three and 5%. Now, what would be some of the concerns about a town compost heap? Well, at first, let me say this is in no way a strike against any town transfer station crew. They are not in the business of creating finished compost. What I have learned over and over again is that we all, when we clean up our properties, whether it's branches and sticks, it's grass clippings or it's leaves or whatever it is, we send it all to the dump. We load it onto a truck and either as individuals or by hiring a company, it all goes to transfer stations. And in that material, there can be both the live stems and branches of invasive plants that are very capable of regenerating from those live branches. It's called a propagule. So there are live propagules on their way to the transfer station. And then the other thing is that it's filled with seeds. If there's any soil that goes along with a plant that you pulled, that soil that you throw on the truck has seeds in it of some plant or another. It's out of your control if you then take that back to your property. Now, I can tell you what happened in my own town's transfer station, still happens. They will take and put the material through a tumble grinder. And the tumble grinder does reduce it into something that looks like a mulch. They do turn it about three times. But three turns, and it does come up to a certain temperature, but they're not taking the temperature. And so we don't really know that it got to a temperature that would kill seeds, nor do we know if it would kill propagules. So what we have is this material that is partially composted. And then they used to put it out as free mulch. Well, guess what? <laughs> what you're taking home is basically everybody else's unwanted plants. You could even be bringing your own back home if you're a regular visitor to the to the uh, town leaf dump. So this is not very clean material. And it's false economy is my term for it because you may get it for free, but you don't get the cleanup for free. It will either take your time or you'll have to hire someone or you'll have disappointments with your planting. So I really discourage people from taking free materials from town transfer stations. They're not equipped to produce high quality material. 
Now, I will say that in my own state, there are several towns that have for a few years now invested in the equipment to create high quality compost. And I'm hoping over time that more and more towns do that. I think they will. But right now, at this time, unless your town has that kind of equipment and its staff is trained in its use, I think it's very dicey as to what you're bringing home. Yes, unfortunately, we're getting multiple reports of Asian jumping worms in compost piles at town transfer stations right now. There you go. That's just one example. So the key to improving those compost piles is that it has to be brought up to temperature. And like with jumping worms, I have repeatedly read that the eggs and the critters themselves can be killed at a relatively low compost temperature of about 105 to 110. But that doesn't kill seeds. Some seeds require temperatures as high as 180 degrees for three days. And we're just simply not hitting those kind of temperatures in most town transfer stations. It's hard to do at home. I've composted for years. I assure you that I am not hitting that. And so what I do with my own compost is I create a pile that is close to finished, and then I turn it and turn it until it no longer generates new little baby plants. So when I see little baby plants coming out of my compost pile, I know that I still have viable seeds in there. And those need to go away. Basically, we need to kill the seed. And the best way I know how to do it at home is to just keep turning the compost pile until you don't get any fresh little seedlings coming up. You can also do it by testing your material periodically, maybe in the garage or in a basement, where you just take a couple of cups of material and put it in a takeout food container or something, water it, and see what grows. And when you finally get a sample that's not growing anything, then you know you've turned it enough. And the same is true if you buy topsoil. If you import topsoil from a provider, you can bring somebody else's uncomposted or undead seeds, (laughs) living viable seeds in topsoil can come from someone that you purchase from, even if they, you can ask them about their process and they say, well, we do this, we do that. But the reality is, have they done it well enough? And so it's helpful if you if they allow you to take a, maybe a couple cups of someone's soil home, send a cup of it away for testing to make sure that it tests well, and then to also grow out some of it for a little while to see if it expresses, could be grass, could be little seedlings. But if it's got a lot of live seed in it, this will just be a problem. An alternative way to do it is to, if you know you're going to, let's say, be planting a new area in the fall, you could bring in the soil in the spring and just keep turning it. The same thing as I said with the compost, just keep turning it to make sure that you're not getting unwanted seedlings growing in that purchased soil. That is really great advice. Thank you so much for that. My other question for you was, in your work as a garden designer, what natives have you found that make attractive displays in the front yard? Oh, that's a good question. Gosh, I have a list of about 120 of them that I think are (laughs) perfect. But you know what? They're divided by size categories and whether or not they're evergreen. I will say that in the front foundation garden, 
people have a tremendous preference for smaller plants. And there's a reason for that. I mean, I think design-wise, that is not a bad idea. Some of the plants that I have, gosh, there's so many, but there's some that I have enjoyed using, I will say, that stay relatively small, have a year-round green appearance. One would be Carolina rhododendron. Rhododendron minus is the, believe it or not, is the botanical name. That is a, a lovely evergreen plant with beautiful May blossoms. And that's a, not native exactly to Connecticut, but it is native from New Jersey south into the southeastern part of the U.S. There are a number of evergreens. My very favorite low-growing evergreen is a common juniper called Rapanda, R-E-P-A-N-D-A. Fabulous ground cover. I don't think I've planted probably a couple hundred of them, but I don't know that I've ever lost one. Very, very tough plant. So Juniperus communis rapanda is among the lower growing ground cover style plants. I'm trying to think of a few others. You know, people love the winter berries, but the problem with the straight species winter berries is they get quite tall. So people often will tend towards the cultivars. We have little cultivars out there called red sprite, for instance. And my problem with those, from what I have read, is that they're bred for big, bright red berries. But it turns out that birds, which I think is the topic of your podcast. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah. Birds are not so fond of big red berries. They prefer what nature produces in the straight species. So that's a dilemma. You know, some things that are sold in the nursery trade are native in name, but when it comes down to them functioning as native plants, feeding birds, sustaining various types of insects and pollinators, they aren't all grand performers among the cultivars and the hybrids and the so forth and so on. And so that's something to watch for. And I try to recommend straight species plants as often as I can. Could you talk about mosses for a minute? Oh, I love mosses. So I think mosses might be the most underutilized plant in the native plant card deck that we have. (laughs) You know, mosses are, first of all, so different from most of what we're accustomed to. And they're not, in my experience, sold in garden centers. You can buy them mail order. One of the big differences between mosses and vascular plants is, uh, I just tipped you off, they don't have a vascular system in any conventional sense, where the trees, the shrubs, all of our flowering perennials, our grasses, they all have vascular systems where they can draw water and nutrients up from the soil, they can photosynthesize with their leaves, and they send it back down into the soil. And there's a complex interaction with mycorrhizae. Well, It's not true for moss exactly. Moss don't have roots. Most people are shocked to hear that, (laughs) but they don't have roots. They absorb their minerals and moisture through cell walls. And this is one reason that they tend to thrive in shady spaces. They are more competitive in shady spaces than many, many, many of our vascular plants. So mosses are very cool that way. They have that niche where 
a lot of vascular plants can't really make it. And this is one reason that it's hard to grow things under trees, but often under mature trees, at least, you may see some incredible beds of bright green moss. Some other interesting things about moss, you can plant it in January <laughs> because moss has its own antifreeze. Actually, it's active in the middle of winter. Uh, you know, if you live in a cold weather area, moss can live in sun. But usually what I found is that it's living on a rock that's got maybe some moisture pouring over it out of a seep, out of the ground, or some other condition where even though it's in sun, it's moist sun. That's been my experience, although I do think that there are a couple of mosses that are pretty indifferent to the amount of sunlight. They can take a lot of sun, they can take next to no sun, and they still thrive. Uh, there's a wonderful book, if you wanted to get more into mosses, wonderful book called The Magical World of Moss Gardening. It's by a woman named Annie Martin, and she's out of North Carolina. That book is a fabulous introduction to this whole subject, and I highly recommend it. That's great. Thank you. Could you talk about native grasses for a moment? Yeah. To me, that's the sleeper in the whole native plant portfolio. First of all, I have to say that this may be a little more detailed than people want, but we have two broad categories of grasses among the natives, among all grasses, I should say. But among our natives, we have cool season grasses and warm season grasses. Our cool season grasses, here where I live in Connecticut, and I think for much of the northern U.S., it's true, we have no lawn grasses that are anything other than cool season. All of our lawn grasses are cool season. In my area, all of our cool season lawn grasses are non-native. So cool season grasses, there are some among our native plants, but they aren't too many. What we have more of are something called warm season grasses. So let me just explain the difference between the two. The cool season grasses green up when soil reaches temperatures around 45 to 50 degrees. So in my area of Southern New England, that means around March 30th, we've got some pretty green grass going. Famously, our lawn grasses all turn brown in the middle of summer. And a lot of people still to this day believe that that means the grass died, but it's not so. It's actually part of the grass's survival strategy. They will green up again in the fall, usually about sometime after August 20th in this area. And then they'll stay green well into December, where I live at least. And so you have like a camel hump where there's the green that increases in that March, late March, April, May, June timeframe. And then soil temperatures get too high around July 1st and they brown out. And it's their way of going dormant for a period of time till about August 20th in my area, at least. So that's the nature of a cool season grass. We do have some native cool season grasses. One of the prettiest ones, in my opinion, is northern sea oats, Chesmanthium latifolium. But on the other hand, we have some wonderful warm season grasses. These are ones that only really take off when soil temperatures reach over 55 degrees. And really, they really take off when temperatures in the soil are more like 62 to 65 degrees. So big blue stem, little blue stem, switchgrass, uh, these are all 
pretty well-known examples. And if you notice that all of a sudden, June 15th, they take off where they had looked dead before, all of a sudden it's boom, there's a grass plant. Well, that's because their metabolism kicks in when soil temperatures reach that level. So warm season grasses have some phenomenal benefits for birds and for pollinators, and they have phenomenal benefits also for soil management and for carbon capture. So they have many things to offer, but they haven't been traditionally used a lot in horticulture. I work with them a lot because of the style of horticulture I'm engaged in. But in conventional horticulture, the only ones that have really made it into the mainstream nursery trade are little blue stem and then a Midwestern and Western native called Herops parabolus heterolepis, which is prairie drop seed. Prairie drop seed is a shorter warm season grass. Little blue stem is maybe a, at most a four foot tall, and there are a number of cultivars that keep it a little shorter than that. Other than that, you kind of have to go to a specialty to provider a lot of times to get some of these warm season grasses, but they're so worthwhile. They are habitat for a variety of bees, for butterflies. There are butterflies that will use them as larval hosts. Some bees, the ground nesting bees, which are 70% of the bees, native bees in Connecticut, for instance, those bees will use the areas around the crowns, the underground crowns of those warm season grasses for their winter habitat. This is particularly important for bumblebees, that they have bare open ground. And that's what you get in between the crowns of these warm season bunching grasses. So bumblebees, which go into the winter with only the queen alive, and all of next year's hive in her abdomen. It's such an important habitat for that bee. So, and birds, as you no doubt know, use grasses for their seeds. If ground nesting birds will use it for cover to provide them with some protection from predators. So I'm very, very high on warm season grasses <laughs> that for, is great. for ecological purposes. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, is there any final bits of advice you'd like to offer our listeners? Well, take your time. That's what I've learned. If people ask me, like, what have you learned through all of this? I have a line in one of my talks and it just says, never underestimate the power of time and planning to give you the landscape that you want. My other line is, Time and planning are your best herbicides. <laughs> it is a, a game of planning and research, and it pays off. So I really encourage people to take their time, have a plan, get that soil test. It makes a difference. I'd like to thank Kathy Connolly for joining us today. You can find out more about Kathy's work as an ecological landscape designer and consultant by going to speakingoflandscapes.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. 
For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.